shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the bitter end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films that a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt bradley Shirky. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, listeners. And uh, this time we're closing out our look at the Hellraiser theatrical films with Hellraiser Bloodline. It was uh, also called Hellraiser 4 Bloodline in some territories. It um, was released in, let's give the stats on this, released in 96, in March 96. Not a great time to release a horror film. Um <laughs> Famously directed by Alan Smithy, who also directed such movies as uh, Dune, The Extended Cut, <laughs> and Burn Hollywood Burn, an Alan Smithy film, um, which in that case it's especially ironic. Uh, the real directors of this was, uh, I did some research, it was Kevin Yeager and Joe Chappelle, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Produced by Nancy Ray Stone, written by Peter Atkins, it's uh, executive produced by Clive Barker. Starring Bruce Ramsey, Valentina Vargas, Doug Bradley, music by Daniel Licht, cinematography by Gary Lively, edited by Randy Bricker, Rod Dean, and Jim Pryor. It was uh, produced by Dimension Films, but distributed by Miramax Films. Of course, they're both owned by the Weinsteins. Um, with a, a lean running time of 85 minutes, at least in the United States version. Uh, off a alleged budget of $4 million, this made $9.3 million. So, you know, this did not make as much money as um, Hellraiser 3. And the budget was less, from what I could tell from my research, than uh, Hellraiser 2 and Hellraiser 3, and uh, despite the bigger scope. Well, they, I, I think they save a lot of money in the film because all of the, all of the uh, skyscraper scenes and all of the uh, <laughs> space station scenes all seem to be filmed in one room that's being constantly redressed. Yeah, even the stuff in the uh, the late 1700s are a bit like um, BBC costume like drama from the 70s. Yeah, BBC costume drama. Uh, but I thought that was sort of the more charming part of the film. But um, we'll we'll get into this. This is certainly a movie with let's say issues, to put it lately. Had a troubled production. One of my favorite phrases. Um, so Hellraiser for Bloodline. I first watched this when I was on a kick of watching Hellraiser movies. Oh, about six months ago, and. Um, I was intrigued. No, I do remember when this was in theaters because uh, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, we were in middle school, I was, I think, finishing up eighth grade at the time or something, and my friend and I were at the mall, or dropped off by our parents at the mall for a Saturday, and um, I saw this was playing in the theater, but instead we weren't quite old enough to get in. We saw the Chris Farley, David Spade vehicle, Black Sheep. Ooh, cool. Classic so not, collaboration. Not Tom, uh, yeah, I mean, it's no Tommy boy but it's a good um chris farley's filmography you know isn't the the best it's tragically but, brief uh, tragically brief but yeah black sheep it is it tends to be one of the better ones there's a funny scene with the deer in front of a car i think um <laughs> I, I remember almost nothing to that film but i but you know i do remember the poster for hellraiser uh, bloodline which is not a particularly memorable poster because it's just another shot of pinhead staring at the viewer with the movie's title. Yeah, I'm looking at the one on Wikipedia. They do 
It, it looks like almost like a different actor in a pinhead suit. It doesn't even look like Doug Bradley. They do something weird with the eyes, and he's holding what looks like a chick uh, or something. Which I, I think don't it's under- I think it's supposed to be a dove, but it looks like he was holding the lament configuration, and that was photoshopped out, and the dove was photoshopped in. You know, I bet you're right. Looking at how the the way the hand is, it feels very unnatural. Um, the poster I recall seeing in the theater was a different one that was just a big pinhead uh, close-up, you know, floating in space, which is what they use for the covers of a lot of the Hellraiser sequels is a huge pinhead um, image, headshot, right? Because he's the iconic character of the franchise, even though that was never the intention. Yeah. <laughs> Um, when did you first see uh, Bloodline? Well, I caught snippets of it in cable in like on in like ninety seven and ninety eight, but I did not see the movie from beginning to end until two years ago when my wife was rewatching the series. That was the first time I saw it, and I had not watched it again until I watched it a few days ago for this podcast. And um, your wife sounds like a, a Hellraiser fan, uh, Sarah. Oh, she, she uh, absolutely did, is. Yeah, and, and what does she feel about this picture? That it's kind of, it, it's and she's kind of, of of two minds of it. That mm. it's, it is kind of silly when it doesn't need to be, and yet this is like she also acknowledges this is the last hurrah of the series. Right. I mean, it was the last theatrical film, and I'm not saying that direct-to-video sequels are bad. And just as a note, listeners. Um, you know, I've had some people asking me, why aren't we doing all, you know, 20 Hellraiser films <laughs> in one go? And partially it's to prevent our, um, to keep the show fresh, to prevent our, us from burning out and to keep our sanity. But I think also there's nothing keeping us from doing the direct to video films at a later time. And we might well do it, but I, I, we just sort of had a discussion, um, off air about, you, you know, I, I don't. We want different people to listen to the show, and I don't think if someone sees there's three months of a certain franchise, that gets old for everybody. It, it, it can, unless you're unless you're watching one franchise minute by minute, then it never gets old. <laughs> That's so weird. That's been a, a trend. You know, I first noticed it with a, a Star Wars minute by minute podcast, and um, I'm half thinking of doing one that was a joke on the oh what. Um, of course, I, I want to talk about it, and I can't think of the name. Spaceballs? No, no, it's a podcast called The Canon. Oh, yes, about, a very good podcast. Which they actually, it just restarted, because the uh, co-host, uh, Devin Faraci, um, there's a big uh, uh, thing that happened I don't really want to get into. That's a story in itself. But anyway, it has a new co-host um, for the time being. And uh, or I think it was a rotating series of co-hosts. Anyway, they were joking on that show doing a minute-by-minute podcast, someone should do a minute-by-minute podcast on the Steve Martin um, musical feature, Pennies from Heaven, (laughs) which I happen to like quite a bit. Um, Doing that with the musical would be so weird because you'd end up having truncated critiques of the musical numbers. Right. Like, oh, and the part where they tap dance here and the coins are rolling, and we'll talk to you next week. Yeah, it's... Exactly. That would be quite strange. Um... Anyway, Hellraiser Bloodline. You can tell this is a good movie because we're already off track 10 minutes into the show. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the cast um, before giving a... Actually, I'm going to give a broad overview of the plot, then we'll talk a bit about the cast, and then okay. we'll go through the movie. So, um, Hellraiser Bloodline, it's, it 
it almost feels like three episodes for a Hellraiser TV show stitched together. It's, it, um, it does, and I so yeah. I can't fault this movie for being ambitious because it does try to tell a sweeping story that spans the centuries. Right. I mean, the ambition and the the. I would say overall darkness of this film seems like a, a course correction compared to Hellraiser 3, which was more, you know, very Nightmare on Elm Street-y um, with the puns and explosions and, and everything. And, and CD Man, my favorite character of all time. Um, but yeah. Hellraiser Sadly, he Blood, does not return. No, I CD Man Street is in spinoff as far as I'm concerned. But um, <laughs> things start off in 2127. We meet uh, Dr. Paul Merchant, he uh, is on a, a spaceship using his his arms in sort of this uh, like virtual reality joystick uh, thingamajig. Well, what he, ha- a he has a Waldo apparatus, which is so right. Cheap, which as a sci-fi nerd and a robotics nerd, I love that we're seeing a Waldo apparatus depicted in this movie. Can you explain what that means? Yes, it actually it comes from the uh, Robert Heinlein uh, novella Waldo's World. Um, and what, what a Waldo is, it's essentially, it's a set of gloves with sensors that you wear and the way you move your hands makes a set of robotic arms copy those movements, uh, often on a different scale. So in this movie, you know, he puts, he puts the gloves on and moves his hands and then we see a robot copying those movements to solve the lament configuration. And that, and that is the essence of a Waldo. And the, the Waldo, um trope you mentioned is something you see quite often in anime with the mecha um, stuff with people in suits where they move their hands and it moves other stuff going on. Mm, yes. um, let's see here. You so, won't see it in a power glove. The Nintendo power glove is not a true Waldo. Right, because it has buttons that you push. And, and anyhow, we're getting <laughs> off topic. Um, 2127, the spaceship is called the Minos, which is a reference to the Greek Isle where the Minotaur lived from a Greek mythology legend. And, of course, so, there's a labyrinth in there. Of course. And, um, pin, you know, that'd be cool if Pinhead had a Minotaur symbite, but we're not really... <laughs> save that for Pitch a Sequel. Yeah, we'll save that for Pitch a Sequel, of course. Um, but and, yeah, and using, so using I, his robot, he solves the lament configuration, which causes the robot to explode. Which I and kind of ar- like that, yeah. And, and around uh, when that happens, the Space Marines show up. The Space Marines show up, and then we get this... Um, really forced wraparound story where he's like, ha, let me tell you this history of my whole family so you don't kill me and take me in jail. Ha, 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 Yes, because this woman gets locked in his control room with him and he decides to tell her, he decides to give her the, an explanation of what the hell is going on in this opening scene. Yeah, it's a Hellraiser version of like five minutes in heaven or whatever. <laughs> so he, he tells her a story of his, uh, the, you know, if not the start, an early part of the, his bloodline with the Philippe Le Marchand. Uh, the, uh, in 1796 in France, he is the creator of Le, the Lament Configuration. We see a lot of actors wearing poofy wigs. And, uh, and what I like in the different segments of this film, just sort of on a, a bigger scale, is it's a bit Lovecraftian in that the main character is always doomed. I suppose, and like I kind of, I wish, I wish the movie had really lingered on this this period piece, 
because I, I kind I, I really am intrigued about about having like Cenobites in this this easily romanticized era. But instead, we we, we learn the origin of the lament configuration that uh, Philippe Lamarchand gets a, a set of specific instructions from a decadent French nobleman to build a puzzle box. And we see him going through the steps of, uh, of assembling the puzzle box, creating the wood. Uh, we see rough versions and how they they uh, they fit together. And one of the things I've loved about the Lament configuration is that it really is unsolvable. All the transformations that it undergoes are clearly impossible. And yet, when we see the Lament configuration being assembled... It starts. It, it takes that impossibility, and instead of making it alien and mystifying, it it, it just makes it seem absurd. I, I wish that we saw less of the lament configuration being assembled. You know, it's the classic problem with prequels, and that it explains mysteries nobody wanted to solve to begin with, and then once you explain uh, why Darth Vader is angry. Um, he becomes a lot less interesting. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a great, like, see, if you did a true pinhead origin movie, if at the end, you know, he gets turned into Hellraiser and then rises from a bed of chains and goes, no! I mean, it would fit better than it did Darth Vader. <laughs> um, but, but Philippe delivers the puzzle box to the decadent French nobleman, whose assistant is played by TV's Adam Scott. It's not though, is it? No, that's I looked it up. That's Adam Scott from Parks and Recreation, and the uh, and the podcast you talk and you too to me. I thought that was him, but I couldn't be sure. I thought I was hallucinating. I'm like, this looks an awful lot like Adam Scott, but that's hilarious. Yeah, I did some research. Like this was like he was like this was back when he was first getting started and was just kind of taking any role that was available. You know, he was a bit player uh, and not like a writer, actor, producer like like he is now. And yeah, this was this was I think this was like his first real major film role was as the assistant to the creepy count in Hellraiser Bloodline. <laughs> you know, another comedian that got his start in a horror movie was um Oh, I can't think of his name. The guy that plays Ant-Man. Oh, Paul, yeah. Oh, and Paul Julie Rudd Brown, her her big, a, big screen debut debut was in was it The Children? Could the horror been, movie yeah, about right. three uh, seven-year-olds who kill people in their small town. That sounds right. That's hilarious. Yeah, I, I didn't actually pay attention to the credits, so I didn't... It, it said, I always thought the guy looks like Adam Scott, but it actually is. Wow, wow, wow. So, so you know, one, like one day we'll do a spinoff podcast called Die Laughing, all about people known for comedy who got their start in horror. It's quite a lot. There's, uh, I mean, also a lot of comedians were on Tales from the Crypt, but we're... Yeah, anyway. Um... <laughs> Uh jeez. So, yeah, so, you know, so anyway, you know, this... they so uh the the nobleman Lelise and uh and his assistant Adam Scott, they bring, they take the puzzle box to their home, uh to their manor, and they also bring in a young woman who I believe is coded to be a uh, prostitute. Yes. Uh, they kill her over dinner, skin her alive. Yep. Or I guess skin her dead. I think she's she's strangled and dead by that point. Hang her skin up on hooks. And open the lament configuration, which does something we've never seen before. It fills her skin with demonic essence. Again, I think not not a terrible idea. But what what I find sort of surprising is they when they flash back to this stuff, you think like, oh, okay, Pinhead's going to puff up right away, and he doesn't. I mean, this is really more about Angelique, and and Pinhead's presence is quite um, later in the film than I expected. Even yeah, though Prince, we see him yeah, he split. doesn't show up till much later. 
Uh, we see him for a split second in the beginning where he flashes, and then they dub over his laugh, but it doesn't. But his mouth isn't moving, so it's a strange um, <laughs> effect. Yeah, but of course, uh, Lelise makes the classic mistake of calling up that which he cannot put down. Uh, and eventually Angelique takes over the whole manor house, uh, kills Lelise, uh, makes Adam Scott immortal. Uh, and then we have a, then we get a time jump. Yeah. And, and then eventually kills Le Marchand. Um, and then in, yeah, a time jump to what would have been present day, more or less 96. And, and we're uh, finally, it, uh, back in that crazy lament configuration inspired building from the end of Hellraiser three. Right, which is a nice bit of continuity. It, it should be noted the writer of this, uh, Peter Atkins, also wrote Hellraiser two and three. So hmm. it's not that's not by accident. But we see John Merchant, the you know the descendant uh, two hundred odd years later of uh, Le Marchand, is a um, famous uh, architectural designer, and uh, he's being he has nightmares about um, Angelique. And Angelique, you know, goes to America with her immortal um, Adam Scott dude. What's his name? Who she eventually kills, as I recall. Uh, yes, in this 90s section. Um, it, this is, I mean, we, we, you hinted at this earlier, but this part just, like, looks bland and cheap, and it looks like a, like a soap opera or something. Like, there's nothing... I mean, like, the... So, like, Paris, France, 1796. What an interesting setting. Like the '90s in an office building. Uh. Well, I think I think the thing that that weakens the the modern day office building sections is that you know at the at the end of the third film, the glimpses we get of this of this building with all the lament configuration inspired architectural flourishes, it, it's it's really chilling and foreboding. But in this film, all of the architectural flourishes all culminate in weird spinning gears, moving parts, and like shifting panels and as a result it, it looks less cre- creepy and foreboding and more like a whimsical chocolate factory it's a bit over designed um one thing i do like though and in, in this segment we get pinhead and angelique come to life you know angelique comes to life and summons a uh, pinhead and there's sort of a, a bit of a bitchiness between the two, which is sort of interesting. Well, it, it's it's kind of strange because you know she she goes into the foundations of uh, of the building because, uh, as we know, the lament configuration was sunk into the cement foundation. She punches a support pillar, pulls the lament configuration out. I I really don't know why Angelique and Pinhead have this relationship with each other because do we have any reason to believe that the two have ever even met? Because it's nope. clear that she has been away from hell since she was summoned uh, in in France in the the seventeen hundreds, and whereas Pinhead hasn't really been active as Pinhead until the close of the First World War. So when did they have a chance to interact and build this relationship? They want you to fill in the blanks, but it makes their um, interactions all the less satisfying. They, they create a lot of blanks, such as Angelique apparently being the princess of hell. Yeah. And we never um, really learn, we never really see what that means exactly. So, I mean, after this segment, eventually uh, John Merchant gets killed, and then we go back to the wraparound story in the uh, year 21, 27 on the 
spaceship Minos. Well, we also get to see uh, Pinhead in uh, in the in the building create a whole new set of Cenobites. Right. What do you think about those Cenobites? They. I don't like seeing them get created, but overall I like the designs, particularly the the twins that are turned into one weird conjoined mm-hmm. Cenobite. That's just wonderfully grotesque. The twins look cool. I like the idea of dog Cenobites, but they just look kind of dumb. Yeah, it looks it looks and, Muppety, but not in a good way. Yeah, it could have used like another pass. Like I, I think the idea of demon dogs are fine. I mean, look at Ghostbusters, right? But um, I think I think what it is is that they is that it's too it's too well lit, and when it moves, it moves a sure. bit too much. If they'd been more subtle with the movements and a bit more artful with the lighting, I think that the animatronic or the puppet they created would have worked perfectly well. Right, maybe just had plumbing eyes or the outline of a jaw. Right, it's um. Yeah, overlighting kills a lot of man- monster effects. I think specifically of the uh, the ending of the TV movie version of It with the spider monster. Oh, yes. In which, a little bit of trivia for that movie, um, the director was off working on another film, so couldn't supervise post-production very well. And in the editing, they changed the color correction to make the monster more visible. Hmm. When it was meant to be mainly in the shadows because he knew it didn't he didn't think it looked very good interesting but yeah back back in the back in the future uh (laughs) we get to watch uh, a bunch of space marines die as the cenobites manifest in the space station and uh including a cenobite version of angelique so i guess in addition to being a demon she is now also a cenobite uh although i love her cenobite design with the splits with the split scalp and you can see her exposed skull very cool uh, and it turns it turns into a wonderful uh, free for all on the space station. And so, like in the '90s, there's this storyline of John in the '90s. That sounds so hipster. Uh, John Merchant is working on a sort of like a counter lament configuration called the Elysium configuration. Yes, because we we learned that that uh, La Marchand before he died had come up with a way to like reverse the lament configuration. And his ans- his descendants have been attempting to perfect it, most notably the one in the nineties. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. finally it's finally Doctor Paul Merchant uh, in twenty one twenty seven who has built this presumably, I guess, solar power satellite. They never really explain what the satellite's there for, but no. that's like the culmination of all this work. It's actually a secret trap designed to defeat the Cenobites and destroy the Lament configuration. Which I think is it's a. Uh interesting idea uh, but it you know the effects don't quite work and at the same time it's not necessarily a satisfying ending I'll just say it it's not a good ending to have a like ha 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 my spaceship can kill you to be an ending is um, a bit anticlimactic well I guess we, we never I, I think something that's missing is that because we've seen we've seen in the first film that that you know someone tries to destroy the lament configuration by fire and it doesn't work because it doesn't burn and a demon rescues it. I, I I feel like because because what we get is essentially a big explosion. I feel like we need we need some reason to believe that you can't just blow the lament configuration up or smash it with a hammer. Like I I I feel like what we should have seen are other descendants of La Marchand 
each attempting mm. to destroy the lament configuration and failing. And keep keeping in mind, we already know from earlier films there are multiple lament configurations, so destroying one doesn't really solve these problems. Uh, and, and two, we even get in the flashbacks an explanation that uh, Le Marchand's blueprint survived, so people tried to make their other people tried to make their own lament configurations, which presumably is where the other two came from. And what it boils, boils down to is like the whole Le Marchand thing, you know, his generations trying to uh, defeat Pinhead and failing. That would have been a great concept for a television series. Well, you could you could even do you could even do I think uh, just a self-contained movie about that if you just did these little twenty-minute vignettes hopping through time that all culminated with the Elysium configuration. Or hell, make this into a trilogy, right? Have the the France part be its own movie. <laughs> you know, think of something more interesting for the '90s, and think of some better material for the future. That the is future probably st- what would have happened today. What with right, you know, movies right. where they split books up into multiple films. Yeah, um, let's talk about the cast, and we'll go back into a more detailed discussion of the film. Um, Doug Bradley, as Pinhead, has a lot less to do in this one than he did in Hellraiser 3. But he's always a treat. Yes. No, he, he always, even if the, um, even if he's working from, like, a not very good script or a troubled production, he always gives it his all. He doesn't seem to ever give a lazy performance, in my mind, which is admirable. There's there's some there's something very British about that about how like you, uh, where you bring the same level of performance to anything you do and I think that's one of the reasons why Doug Bradley and by an extension Pinhead is always so memorable uh, and enjoyable even in the worst Hellraiser movies. Right, um, Bruce Ramsey. He you know has plays the same character through three different generations, and you think gee that'd be quite the treat as an actor to do that and. Um, Unfortunately, you know, I don't recognize him for anything. I think he's kind of bland. Well, they they each each character that he plays is pretty much the same the same generally brooding type. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think it should have been in each version should have been invested with a bit of their own personality, especially. And, and that could even be used for storytelling, like the original La Marchand, the toy maker. I think it would be wonderful if he was a very joyful, positive, sure, happy fellow. Right. And we see each generation, they get more and more miserable as they continue trying to fight their family's curse and failing. And, um, yeah, I was also bothered by the hair on John Merchant, and I'm not sure why. I don't know if well, it was a it's wig a '90s what, buzz but... cut in the future. It doesn't really do anything. It's it's like it's like they saw yeah. Alien Three and were like that. That's how we want him to look. Do that. Shaved head. Gotta love it. Um, <laughs> Valentina Vargas as Angelique. Uh, I think was actually pretty good. You know, she also has to do kind of an arc, if not as much of one. She's... And you feel sympathetic for her when she's, you know, killed by uh, the the rich dude in the Paris. And then she's um, ha- has an interesting look to her that works for like a, a femme fatale Cenobite. She she is she is well cast and and each of her incarnation and this is a, the thing with a person playing multiple roles. Uh, each of her incarnations is distinct. The the peasant girl is completely different from Angelique, who is also played completely differently from her Cenobite form. Hmm. So she did leave a very good impression on me. What about uh, Adam Scott as Jacques? He, 
I feel like, <laughs> I, like the boy can't act. I feel like it had to have been bad direction that they, he's just, he's just generally bland and, and menacing. I almost, I almost wish he played uh, the wicked count. I, I like, and really played oh, it up yeah. as like a Marquis de Sade thing. I think that would have been great, but to have been put in that position, it would have required the casting, a, the casting director and the director to know the future and know who Adam Scott was going to become. Part of me would love to think if um, they ever do a big theatrical Hellraiser again, maybe they can squeeze Adam Scott in as a as a cameo. A, l- a little treat for the audience, yeah. A little treat for the audience, and everyone else would be Adam Scott. I, I would love to know what he thinks about this film. I wonder if he, he if there's any interview where he discusses his part in Hellraiser Bloodline. Good, good question. I mean, um, there might even be EPK footage from uh, EPK stands for Electronic Press Kit. Um, where they do interviews that they, they ship over to new shows uh, to promote the film. But anyway, um, he has a big enough role in this that there might be some old uh, period EPK footage. But yeah, what he thinks looking back on it, I agree, would be very, very interesting. And, and you look at you know some people that a lot of actors, comedians or not, got their start in horror, and some of them seem more than willing to talk about it, like Kevin Bacon about his role in the original Friday the 13th. And other actors outright have it in their... Uh, have it where their publicist can end an interview at any time if you mention the horror movie case Mm. in point that's what i've heard allegedly about a jennifer aniston and leprechaun i I, you are not allowed to mention leprechaun i think it's the same thing with johnny depp and that that uh, elm street film he was in well he was in two he was in the original and then he had a cameo in that sort of spoof commercial in um i think freddy's dead right the sixth yeah, this is the sixth one. Huh. Hmm. So, um, looking over the other cast, um, nothing much jumps out. I, I, I thought Mickey Cottrell as Duke Leal, um, and I'm mispronouncing that, was, was pretty neat, I think. What, what little... What little he does uh, does leave you with an impression. I mean, he's he's hamming it up in the way a decadent French aristocrat, in a way yeah. you want a decadent French aristocrat hammed up. And I love that they go nuts with the caked on makeup and beauty mark. Sure. Uh, I mean, he just he kind of he represents a lot of the things that that were kind of, I guess I guess wrong with the aristocracy at that time. And he's got a wonderful jowly face. That makes for a great, you know, evil... When he does evil laughter, it just matches the way the makeup and all this stuff pretty well. And it, it makes you wish that uh, Adam Scott as Jocks would have gone a little bit more over the top. Not to outdo the Duke, but if he would have had a bit more um, vivacity to his performance. Yes. And not been as stiff, I think that could have made it a bit better. Oh, and actually, looking, looking at my notes here, I completely forgot that, that uh, Duke Lelise was modeled off both the Marquis de Sade and uh, Giles DeRay. And there are, there are not nearly enough references to Giles DeRay in modern pop culture. You, um, I was going to say gotta love those child killers, but that's kind of... <laughs> I, I don't know much about Giles DeRay. Certainly, Marquis de Sade is who everyone hears about. But I'll have to do some research. It sounds... Um... Well, you can, you can romanticize the Marquis de Sade as like a, a libertine and a figure of sexual liberation, but mm-hmm. Giles Duray, uh, you really can't romanticize him. He he was a monster. 
Oh, it sounds like a lot of, I'm reading, skimming some stuff here about ropes and hooks. That sounds right up Highlander's alley. Highlander. Not Highlander. God damn it. I did that again. Although, Hellraiser. Yeah. Hellraiser so, versus Highlander could be cool. Like, what not, happens if a Cenobite know, kills a Highlander and experiences the quickening? Does that make them double immortal? Save it for pitch a sequel, but that's not a gotcha. terrible. I've heard of worse ideas for crossovers. <laughs> that's somewhat inspired. Um, so, can we talk about the CGI in this film? Yes, yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, so uh, to, to remind listeners, this film came out. In early 96, which meant they probably filmed it around, eh, like, 94 or 95. And CG was still really in its infancy. Yes, you can make the argument, oh, the first movie with CG in it uh, was um, Star Trek Wrath of Khan. But, I mean, that was... This is more of an attempt to do it front and center in a movie. Where it's not a sort of uh, pixelated, you know, wireframe-looking thing. And um, it looks bad especially it's really noticeable with the lament configurator with the robot trying to solve it in the beginning well the 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 thing that that always the thing that really strikes me is that all all the space scenes are done with cgi and the cgi it looks it looks better than the cgi that you were getting on babylon 5 at the time which is you know the the science fiction television series but it's right. not so far in advance of that that it feels worthy of being, you know, part part of a film. You're talking about the exteriors, this yeah, the, ex- the exteriors and the and the space marine shuttle that we see. Mm-hmm. And 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 again, my my uh, obsession, my you know, my my obsession with like figuring out like special effects uh, timelines. Is you know that you know we knew how to make spaceships look good in CGI. Uh, the Star Wars uh, trilogy special edition would come out the very next year, and that's got some gorgeous uh, CGI X-wing shots in it. And mm-hmm. admittedly, this film isn't working with industrial light and magic. It's not working no, with not. the Lucasfilm <laughs> budget. And and yet, I can't. I guess I I gotta wonder. It couldn't have possibly been cheaper to do CGI when you could have done a better looking model. So why go with the CGI? Was someone just enamored with it? Maybe the uh, Dimension Films and Miramax had a good deal with with a, a cheap um, production house. Maybe. Uh, I mean, let's, the production history of this film, I, I do want to touch on, but um, can you think of what other CG effects? What did you think about the CG Lament Configurator? The... The robot plays with. Oh, the, the robot. The robot plays with it. It looks like a video game cutscene of yeah. the time. It, I I, I really does. feel. I mean, and I guess, and yeah, they probably couldn't build an animatronic that could manipulate the the lament configuration quite the way they want it to. But they really don't need to because, as we've seen in the other films, once you get going, the lament configuration kind of solves itself. So they could have used that to cut around the limitations of the robot's fingers. Or why not just, when it's a close-up, why not have it be a puppeteer wearing robot gloves? Just make it somebody with really, really thin fingers so that it doesn't look too obviously like gloves. Yeah, because it looks like in the wide shot, the robot is uh, is a model that I think looks pretty cool, retro-looking, right? But then, yeah, when you see his um, hands manipulate, both the robot hands in the close-up and the element configuration, both are, are CG, and it looks um, it looks poor. And you have to understand, I mean, even if it was made, I don't think it would have looked good. Um, 
I've seen worse CG, but it just really took me out of the moment. Yeah, and 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 yet, and and it's not too distracting because they don't linger on it too much. Right. Where the CG really falls apart for me is in the end when the satellite reconfigures itself into the Elysium configuration. Uh, Once yes. it starts moving, mm-hmm. you can see all the holes in its design. <laughs> And I also and, wish yeah. it reconfigured itself in an impossible way, just like the Lament configuration did. Instead, it just closes like a box. That's all it's got going. And 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 it's and like these two little light sprites circle around it as it closes. I think that I think that's the unforgivable sin of the CGI are the light sprites that swirl around it. It makes it feel a bit like a screensaver, doesn't it? Yeah, like it's like it should be more than two light sprites. Like at least it needs to at least be three, so you get that old school atom look, look to it, mm. or or just a whole bunch of them, just so it looks it, so that it looks like a truly great accumulation of power. Instead, it looks it looks kind of wimpy for what it what it eventually does. It would have been cool if when the spaceship was transforming itself, if it would have turned into something looking like Leviathan. Now that would be cool too, yeah. So into the production history of Bloodline, as we uh, mentioned at the start of the show, this is directed by Alan Smithy, which is a uh, a pseudonym that directors use when they feel their work is so besmirched or whatever they don't want to put their name on it. It's pretty rare. Um, well, one it's, of the reasons it's rare is that the Directors Guild has made it much harder to use Alan Smithy in in part right. in part because everyone's in on the joke now. Like it used to be kind of an open secret in Hollywood, but now mm-hmm. everybody knows Alan Smithy. That's right. Um so the original director for this, um this was the only feature he directed and he was fired off it, uh Kevin Yeager. He's better known as a makeup man. And he worked on such uh, classics as Nightmare and Elm Street 2 through 4, uh, the movie Face Off. And lately he's done a lot of work on the Bones TV show. But other oh, than cool. uh, prior to this, he directed two episodes of Tales of the Crypt. Um, I didn't have time to figure out which ones. But uh, Tales from the Crypt is a pretty entertaining show in my book. And um, I, I listened to a, a podcast uh, from the website Dread Central in which they talked about... Um, to Doug Bradley about the Hellraiser films, the mm-hmm. guy that plays Pinhead. And he uh, mentioned, uh, they asked him, you know, to dish a bit about Hellraiser 4. And he said he felt bad for Kevin Yeager because he was the first time director uh, working for Dimension Films. He's working for the Weinstein brothers who were very um, assertive in their personality. And uh, he described Yeager as not um, being a first time director, not, I guess, frankly, not having what it takes to negotiate such a difficult working environment. It doesn't help that the budget was cut out from under him pretty early mm-hmm. in the process. And when he turned in his director's cut, um, it was too slow. It was too artsy. It is not the uh, commercial thing they wanted. So, um, so much of the film was, uh, much of the film is completely reshot by Joe Chappelle, who has uh, directed um, notably Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Huh. But also, but also, he did a lot of work on the TV show The Wire for HBO in more recent years. And um, when Chappelle was done, they said, "Hey, do you want your name to be as the director? You've directed enough where the Directors Guild could, you know, defend you as being the sole director of this film." And Joe Chappelle said, "Well, no, I only do it if I'll share it with Kevin Yeager." And Kevin Yeager says, "I wash my hands of this. I want to do Alan Smithy, so that's why it was with Alan Smithy." 
I would I would love to see that 110 minute initial cut. There's a bootleg cut someone on YouTube um put together huh. off of he probably got it off a of bootleg VHS from uh, the days in conventions where you could buy that stuff more easily. And um it has a lot of unfinished special effects but it has I did manage to read some of the original screenplay for this by Peter Atkins. And what's fascinating is it tells the story in chronological order. You don't have the wraparound story. That's um, good. You have, I like that. Yeah. You have a larger cast. And most notably, and um, Doug Bradley commented on this in his interview with Dread Central, the original ending had um, the main character, Dr. Merchant, sacrifice himself. He's ending his bloodline, ending his family curse to kill Pinhead. God, that would have been a much stronger ending than Wouldn't the Elysian yeah. configuration working and him escaping with the uh, woman. Him escaping in a real shitty effect shot of. I really hate. It's a tough effect to get right, but I really don't like it when uh, you have people in a spaceship that's moving away and they're trying to look out the window. And if you, you do you know it wrong, kills it that spaceship pasted. for me. Is yeah. that whenever the engines run, it's always that generic shuttle coming in sound effect that we have heard in everything. I did notice this movie does not use the sound effect from the video game Doom of the doors opening, which we hear <laughs> in a lot of movies in the sci-fi movies in the nineties. Or that oh, monster growl. Yeah, the <laughs> But the door opening from Doom, I always catch it in a movie and it's used all over the place. In 90s film. And it's a good door sound effect, but still, it's like the Wilhelm scream of doors. Yeah, like, like now now it used to be fun, now it's a distraction. Now it's a terrible distraction. Um, I think we've done a pretty good job sort of bouncing around discussing this film, actually. I mean, I, I really loved the, uh, the, the stuff at the beginning in France. Like, that's my favorite stuff. It reminds me of one of my favorite films, Amadeus. I think it's a interesting time period you don't see covered certainly in horror films very much um who are your favorite cenobite in this geez that's a good question oh i'll say angelique i guess like none of them really struck me as being that interesting i like the ambition of the cenobite dogs i think you could have done more with that yeah the uh as much as I like the Cenobite twins, who that's obviously what they're going to turn into when you see two identical security guards. Mm-hmm. But I got to I got to agree with you. I think the Angelique Cenobite is my favorite Cenobite. Her design is so striking that whenever I remember the female Cenobite from earlier films, I retroactively imagine her with mm, the split yeah, right. scalp. That is that just looks so creepy. Yeah, because the, the female Cenobite in the uh, the first two films, it's more of the, the larynx, the throat, you know, is opened. And she's strangely and, uh, absent uh, in this film. Yeah, the uh, the non-continuity of the Cenobites from film to film is quite, um, it's a bit frustrating. But you can see also, if you were a makeup guy hired to do Highlander, uh, shit, I did it again, Hellraiser. Um, <laughs> it you'd want to do your own Cenobite, right? That'd be part of the fun, I think. And everyone's trying to outdo Pinhead, which you can't do. Mm, you can yeah. try, but there's something about Pinhead that makes it so um, so iconic, so memorable. Oh, but do, do you... 
know that the the whole point of the Elysium configuration is that it's supposed to trap light and reflect light back in on itself infinitely to create like an infinite point of energy that you know obliterates the lament configuration in Hellraiser. Do you know that that's technically a real thing? What's the real version? In in theory, in theoretical physics, there is a thing called a Kugelblitz, and that's exactly what what this is. A a Kugelblitz is when you focus light, uh, uh, you focus beams of light on a single point in space, and this could be many beams of light, it could be one beam of light that you use mirrors to bounce back on itself infinitely, but once you get enough of those beams of light converging on the same point, it creates such density of energy that right at that point, it creates a miniature black hole that will sustain itself. So you you create a black hole that has about as much mass as a fo- single photon, and yet it will perpetuate itself. I would like to mention that uh, Hellraiser Bloodline came out in 96. Five years prior, we got a horror movie sequel that was also a, a prequel of sorts about a toy maker that made um, a horrific object. I'm talking, of course, about Puppet Master 3, Toulon's Revenge. Huh. That's to say nothing of 1999's Retro Puppet Master. Well, you know, we... It's funny how, how quickly Hellraiser escalates through sequel cliches, because it's inevitable when you do enough sequels, one of the sequels is they go to New York, and one of the sequels, they go to space. Hellraiser did all that in four films, but it took Friday the 13th 10 to do all that. It also only took Leprechaun 4. That, that That's true, and Leprechaun also went to the hood. Uh, they haven't gone to the hood twice. in Hellraiser yet. <laughs> Yeah, twice. Yeah, there's a whole separate sequel series of Leprechaun in the Hood. Um, Hood Razor, yeah, that's okay. I guess you can do that. Oh, and the Kugelblitz, the the origin of the uh, Kugelblitz is kind of ambiguous, but it's usually credited to to John Archibald uh, Wheeler, who wrote about them in his uh, paper, Geons, which is all about space-time curvature. Do you have any last thoughts on Hellraiser Bloodline? Uh, no, just that if you're gonna t- I, if you were gonna take Hellraiser to space, I wish it, I wish it was even more ambitious. Maybe cut out some of the period stuff to have more money for the future stuff. How awesome would it be to have Cenobites chasing space marines through a space station that keeps changing shape? That would have been so cool. This movie is full of a lot of missed opportunities. And I, and I think, yeah, that's almost like Hellraiser meets the Cube or something. Yeah, yeah like right. I feel like I do have a certain fondness for this film, but it's a fondness born more out of what this movie could have been rather than what it was. Mm-hmm. I I too admire the ambition of this film, and um, had it just focused on one story instead of three, I think it would have been better. Uh, budget issues aside. Uh, I, I would give Hellraiser for Bloodline a, a sequel. No, I as much as I love the stuff in Paris, it's not enough to make to. It's not that great that you can recommend the whole movie. Although if you're an Adam Scott fan, um, <laughs> you might find this unintentionally amusing because he has a pretty meaty role in this. Yeah, I guess I, I'm I'm going to give it a, a sequel. No, but a very mild sequel. No, I I will applaud it for giving a definitive end to Hellraiser and the Lament configuration. 
but also setting that end far enough in the future that they can continue making sequels that have Pinhead with no problems. And I'm actually kind of shocked that uh, that the merchants don't show up in any of the future sequels. Right. Um, oh, this is interesting. One of the directors they tried to get for this film was Stuart Gordon. Oh, wow, that would have been amazing. But he left over the classic reason, creative differences. Man, that would have been real cool. Absolutely. So now let's go to pitch a sequel which we pretend there is no sequel made to the movie, and we pitch one. Um, do you mind if I begin, Thrasher? No, go right ahead. Okay, so what I am thinking of is a movie in which, um, you know, the way this ends, it ends with, uh, this is the second Hellraiser movie that we've covered in which Pinhead dies at the end. <laughs> so I'm trying to think what else you could do, and uh, why not do a... A super prequel about the nail maker that made the nails that were embedded in Pinhead's head. <laughs> and the the nail maker would um, would be a single uh, old man, sort of crotchety, who at one point cared about his craft of making nails, but now sort of half-asses it as he has to. Uh, it's his last year on the job of being a nail maker. And one week away from retirement. One week, yeah, one week away from retirement. And as his his nails are coming out jagged and so forth, he he sells a box to a uh, a small child. And the the child um, takes it home to his father, and the child's father gets horrifically injured because these nails are so poorly manufactured. They sort of backfire. Like it, the the, the father. There's a sequence he tries to hit the nail into a piece of wood to build a bench or something. And because it's so crappily manufactured, the, the nail spins and, and hits him in the eye and he ends up bleeding out to death. And uh, the little boy and family, you know, tries to, to get back at the, you know, tries to file a lawsuit, tries to get back at this nail creator. And uh, the, the nail maker is um, terribly concerned and makes a deal with a, um, A demon, a Cenobite? So. Not, not, you know, not, not the Cenobites. I'm, I'm thinking that to the, uh, so the, it was showing the time period of the, um, the, the human version of, um, Pinhead was in World War One, I, I believe. Uh, yes, that, that's, that seems to be about where they place him. Right. So it would be in that time period, but he, he would meet up with a, a descendant of the Marchands that we did not get to see in Hellraiser 4 who gives him a, and he starts to have a weird relationship with the lament configurator that uh, he learns about through this Marchand. Let's call him Dr. Dr. Mark Marchand. <laughs> and as he finds this stuff, he all of a sudden, uh, he, he sneaks away. He steals uh, a lament configurator from um, Mark Marchand's office. And all of a sudden, he hears his voice and gets sort of commanded to make, you will make the finest nails you have ever made for a purpose beyond your wildest dreams. These nails will live on in an infinity. They might even make a pinhead. <laughs> you see a flat-out name drop him in the movie. That's right, yeah. Which, uh, I gotta give them restraint that they've never referred to any of the Cenobites by name. It, it's a remarkable restraint. 
And so as we see that, as, you know, he in the, the final act of the film, he's he's making these nails while, while being driven on by a demonic force, uh, even, even possessed at some point. Uh, meanwhile, he... Um, the wife and the child of the the father that you know bled out due to his shitty nails to try to it, it's sort of like a, a villagers storming the castle moment where they storm this nail maker's poor little shop and, and you get some and there you finally get some demon versus uh, uh demon versus, versus hu- human action you know and a bloodbath at the very end and then we <laughs> finally the last shot of the film will be this, uh, or, or lead character whose name I haven't come up with yet, but I'm sure it'll be a good one. Well, it, he's, he's so obsessive working on this final set of ultimate nails that he works himself to death. And as his box of nails is finished, we see, uh, a sort of, um, like a dark gaping hole come out of the lament configurator. And we hear a deep voice saying, thank you. And it sucks in the nails and shuts closed shut. But so polite. Yeah. (laughs) Thank Thank you. You You are quite welcome. And uh, I would call it Hellraiser colon nailed. (laughs) And the poster would just be um, almost like a parody of the Saw posters. A bunch of bloody nails kind of shot high contrast muted colors <laughs> now you believe <laughs> now you believe a nail can <laughs> can fly straight <laughs> yeah, into someone's can... skull yeah there you go can fly dot, 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 straight into someone's skull so that that's my picture Hellraiser 4 a bit preposterous but there you go alright well my Hellraiser 5 I mean yeah, Hellraiser Five. Yes, of course. Right, well, mine, uh, mine's going to be uh, Hellraiser Five: Rise Harder. Uh, I was originally <laughs> going to pitch a prequel all about what Angelique was doing between her summoning and the events uh, in Hellraiser Bloodline, mm-hmm. and instead, I've decided to do a crossover. I'm going to cross Hellraiser over with Die Hard, but of course, we can't get Bruce Willis. Instead, we can get Reginald Val Johnson as Sergeant Al Powell. So okay. in this cross in this crossover film, it all takes place in the fancy high rise from Hellraiser Four, which you know after after all the crazy stuff with Merchant and the Cenobites uh, in this movie, uh, the tower is sold to the Nakatomi Corporation, and it is now New Year's Eve, and they're having a huge New Year's Eve party, and Reginald Val Johnson. Uh, he has retired from uh, the police force, and he's now uh, uh, acting as a security consultant uh, for the tower. And so he's invited to this party. It also happens to coincide with a crazy cosmic alignment. And this cosmic alignment uh, starts to cause fate to converge. So, of course... Uh, a group of criminals disguised as terrorists attack the tower and take it over as a cover for them breaking into a vault at the core of the tower to steal a bunch of uh, bear bonds. What they don't know is that the uh, is that the merchant family did track down all of the copies of the lament configuration and they are stored in that vault. So, uh, when all hell's breaking loose and the criminals get into that vault, one of them sees the lament configuration, goes, what the heck's this? And solves it, 
and then the whole building turns into a death trap. So Reginald Val Johnson as Al Powell, he has to stop the burglars and stop the Cenobites and save everybody in the tower before the Celestial Convergence finishes and the whole tower gets sucked into hell. Interesting. And I really just want to see Reginald Val Johnson in something. He is awesome. Right, and I'm looking and there's actually an officially licensed um, Lament Configurator you can get that appears to work as a Rubik's Cube. Huh. Like like as a standard Rubik's Cube, or does it have like a strange uh, shape to it? Um, I'll send you a link, but it, it looks like the design from specifically Hellraiser 3. What's hilarious is it says the age range is two to four years. So... Well, I guess they use the same standard age range as the Rubik's Cube. It's licensed by Mesco Toys. I had a feeling this would be a um, a real item, and it, and it is. I'm quite twenty dollars is a bit steep, but if I saw something like this on sale, I might might get it. Be a fun sort of piece for the office. Although, oh, here we go. You see it? Like that's not half bad. Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and open this. Although it does it does make me wonder though. How do you how do you know when you solved it unless you know like a hell of a lot about Hellraiser? Because it looks like the top with that sort of big circle is the only side where it clearly looks solved, but the other sides you could debate how things line up. I think it's when they all look artistically pleasing. And I love I love how everything else on this all, all these uh, suggested products that are featured on this page for the lament configuration puzzle box <laughs> are all just like puzzles uh, jigsaw puzzles of pastoral scenes and the game labyrinth. See what I got on mine. I must be googling different stuff. I get dinosaur puzzles. Huh. I wonder. I wonder if it's taking into account our search history, which means it's probably it, time for me to clear my cookies again. It must. Remember, listeners, clear your cookies before your cookies clear you. Clear your cookies, clean up your hard drive space. Uh, <laughs> clear your cookies. You don't want to lose face based on your search history. Clear your cookies. Now, before we do um, what you're watching, I ran across I ran across a another vintage uh, recording of um, their one of the original versions of sequel cast that aired in the BBC. Oh, the really? 70s. I did. Yes. Um, so let me dig out the tapes here. Russell, Russell, click, clack, Russell, Russell, clickety, clack, clack, clack. This tape has a lot of dust on it. Okay. Oh, I think that, that did it. That sneeze got the, uh, got all the dust cleared off there. Got all the dust cleared off that old about? BBC dust. Well, BBC Dust, let's, uh, let's put it in. Hello, and welcome to Sequally Speaking, with your host, Nigel Rappaport and Bixen Baxenberg. Yes, I'm Bixen Baxenberg. And Without here... a doubt, sir. Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, we're, I'm talking about a film that's most um, enjoyed throughout all the years. It's a film... About a man who is not just any man. He, he has a a, a strapping chest, a, a a chin you could cut 
the cheese on, if you pardon the expression, I prefer a nice rich camembert with a paired with a chardonnay myself. In but of course, as we know, this shop is bereft of cheese. But you speak, of course, of Sir Adam Scott. I, I, I do not speak of Sir Adam Scott. That's a very precise thing. Now, it, as of this recording in the uh, May 28th, 1978, we are, I am talking about the uh, motion picture Superman, directed by Richard Donner. Ah, yes, the Supered Man, indeed. That's right, inspired by the play from the 1900s, uh, Superman is God. I don't know, written by, uh, by, um, written by a little bit of a comic book by some uh, some uh, some fellows from New York City. I don't know their names, they're not important, but what is important... Well, is well, well you, you, you can. And I indeed did my pre-search by Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster. Damn it, this is my show, how dare you do pre-search. I don't do any pre-search, I just walk into the room, usually after having three points at the... Uh, Wibbly wobbly across the street, if you know what I mean, and I go and have a little bit of uh, get my and I sort of snooze my way through most of the picture, only awake for about twenty minutes, and I walk in and I do my show. This is how I've done it here at the BBC for five years. I shouldn't have no one telling me any different. Yes, I thought that was one of Harry Seacombe's cartons of quote unquote milk in your hand. That's right. This milk is quite a lovely elixir. It's a mixture of Scotch petunias, and a little bit of chamomile topped with a floater of uh, the finest Japanese whiskey. So, Superman the motion picture stars Marlon Brando. I don't know what happened. I fell asleep in his segments, but he looked very shiny in his suit. Well, I believe he played the musical man. Ah, yes, the musical man. He He did a lot of singing and dancing in the motion picture with Frank Sinatra. Uh, We're singing about all the trouble they're going to have in Metropolis. Uh, yes, he's all the trouble in Metropolis he wobbles about. I heard he kept egg rolls in his pants. Also, Superman features a young baby. We see his wee willy winky, and he turns into a Superman and working as some sort of a reporter when he has something to do with a lady. Ugh. Oh, jeez. And then there's a bald man who pushes people onto the subway tracks. Horrified, I must tell you, with violence in these motion pictures. But as we all know, the key to all great dramas is crooked real estate deals. Ah, crooked real estate deals. My ex-wife had a crooked real estate deal. Except it wasn't well, it's because of your crooked deal. real estate, sir. Uh, no, no, it wasn't a crooked real estate, if you give my drift. It was a crooked bosom. The right breast hung to the left side at approximately 43 degrees. But when it was uh, pert and alert, it would straighten to the right at 42 degrees, a most heinous angle for anything, let alone a breast. I, I, I must ask, have you accidentally married a Picasso painting? Perhaps that one which was stolen from the Louvre uh, just seven months past? I don't want to incriminate myself on this program, but let me say this. Canvas makes a fine uh, friction creator. <laughs> well, as, as we say at the BBC, canvas makes perfect. Canvas, canvas makes perfect. So I hope you have enjoyed this discussion of Superman the motion picture. Such this as picture it was. needs more motion. It's quite long and lengthy. I was able to have two naps 
and I nearly sold himself three way, three minutes into before the end of the picture. As opening credits are so long, I've started to take a swig of me uh, of me special mixture juice, and I ran out and had to fill it up again. You see, this is why you should see all your movies at one of those uh, Alamo draft houses. As soon as they're invented, of course. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, tune in next week and what we talk about another motion picture, Wish of Death, starring Charles Bronson. Mm. Indeed, okay. Pally. And yeah, that was a, that was a vintage recording of. Um, Sequally speaking. Sequally speaking, thank you. Uh, from the BBC from the late 70s. I, hey, fun, I, fun fact. The the dust on old BBC tapes, that they wouldn't, the BBC wouldn't pay for new dust. So all that dust had to be collected and then reused on the set of the show Dust by the BBC. Not just that. Some of that dust had asbestos in it because of uh, lower safety standards, or before there was even safety standards at the time. So it's uh, quite tragic. On to what you're watching. Uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching? I finally saw Wonder Woman. Me too. Oh, cool. Um, so the movie just came out. If you could be light on spoilers. I'll, I'll do my best. All right. Um, so I, I admit, I don't know that much about the comics. What's your familiarity with the comics? And then what did you think of the film? Pretty familiar. Uh, looks okay, so I... The people who have listened to this know my feelings on, on DC's and Warner Brothers' recent uh, output. Um, that being said, Wonder Woman defied 98% of my expectations. It's a very good movie. I might judge it as great, but I'll have to watch it again and really analyze it first. However, this is the first of the recent slate of BBC movies that I actually want to watch again. The recent slate of BBC movies? I'm sorry, BBC, uh, DC Comics movies. Yes. I, I, you know, anyone listening to that uh, vintage um, sequel speaking segment, it's uh, bound to make anyone foggy. The, um, London foggy. Yeah, I, what I really appreciated the most about uh, the directing in this is um, some of the action scenes were these really beautiful composition of wide shots uh, paired mm. with slow motion. It really captured the feel of like a splash page in a comic book. Yeah, the, although I do think there was there was too much cutting in the fight scenes. That was like if if I can say one if I can say one thing negative about it. Um, well, I guess two things negative. There's too much cutting in the fight scenes. It kind of like plays up the artificial nature of what's going on in in a way that I think made them a bit less exciting. And then two, uh, I don't think it needed the flashback wraparound thing at all. I think that all of that could have been cut out. I think, too, the um, I really enjoyed the sort of narration at the beginning. We get almost, it looks like, a motion comic of, like, Renaissance-style paintings. And I thought that was very oh, pretty and well done. Yes, that, that segment about the origin of the Amazons. That was that was very well done. I could have used more of that, actually. Um, but that it kind of would have been neat to, to build, bring in a little bit more lore. Uh, the movie is wonderfully cast. Like, everyone is played by exactly the right person. It was a real treat uh, for me to see um, Robin Wright, uh, formerly Robin Wright Penn. I don't think she goes by that anymore, but the, the woman from Princess Bride um, playing Wonder Woman's aunt. Oh, yes, is the general. 
Do you think? Uh, do you think the movie was based loosely or not on any uh, current um, configuration of Wonder Woman? It's been no, you know, they kind the of they so kind many of times over the years. They they kind of picked and and chose because Wonder Woman more so the the only character whose power set ch- in DC Comics the only character whose power set changes more than Superman's or as much as Superman's is is Wonder Woman, uh, and so they did kind of they did kind of like pick and choose uh, like which versions of her of her power she had. So I guess overall, as far as like her, her power set, I guess she's closest to the way she was in the nineties. And they some, somehow she gets the power to fly at the end. That's never elaborated on, but it does bring up the question. Well, why didn't she fly earlier? If she can fly now, which admittedly, maybe that's a power she hadn't because a part of this movie is her discovering the true nature of her, her superhuman abilities. So I, we could, it could be argued she hasn't figured that out yet. Maybe they'd save that for a sequel. Um, so yeah, I guess she lines up mostly with the 1990s Wonder Woman, as far as powers go. Yeah, I was uh, surprised by some of the plot twist. Um, it, it has a wraparound story that is frankly stupid, but you know yeah. they're they're trying to tie it into something that that, that happened in Batman versus Superman. Yeah, and in fact, most of the things I didn't like were this film's baggage connecting it to other DC movies. But there was less of that than there could have been, you know. Yes, but there's still too much. The photograph. Yeah, the photograph. Like, I, I, if you if you had cut all the wraparound stuff, you could have still done that scene where that photograph is taken. Because we would, we're not dumb. We've seen the other movies. We know that that photograph oh, kind of plays out yeah. in another film, but. But not only do we get reminded of that photograph in the opening wraparound story, when the photograph is taken, the photographer has to make such a big deal about how important this photograph is and how happy he is he's taken the photograph. Although, uh, mild spoilers, since we know that photographer dies uh, less than 24 hours later, I gotta wonder who developed that photograph. Yeah, and film is highly Maybe flammable. he did, maybe it was a rush job. It, um, I do like that the photograph is out of focus, and I mean the 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 Wayne Enterprises truck right up front and center is annoying, uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 good. It covers a lot of ground. I think Chris Pine is is quite good. Etta Candy was wonderful in this movie as well. Like she really is a forgotten character from Wonder Woman's back backstory, but I liked I liked that she showed up, and I liked that we got to see her do a few things. Is that the one played by the actress from The Office, the BBC Office? Yes, yes it is. Yeah, I didn't even recognize it was that same person at first. I had to look it up. I hadn't seen her in so long. Um, well, she just lives in that period uh, look that they put her in. And yet again, she's playing an office worker, so. <laughs> well, yes, but in, but in uh, military intelligence. That Yeah, that is true. That's true. It's, um... Hmm. Now that, now that makes me think of that Agent Carter show a bit. <laughs> Well, we we can only hope that that resurfaces at some point, at some time. Mm, doubt but it. No, over overall though, Wonder Woman was a very good movie. It it is well worth seeing in the theater. Yeah, yeah, good action. I think good. Um, I don't normally say this, but good sound effect dubbing. Like the punches feel like real strong punches. You know that's true. It is very decent sound design. Now that I think about it, I don't think the score was 
terribly memorable. I mean, they use some of that electric guitar riff we got in Batman versus Superman, which is Wonder Actually, Woman. Actually, apparently that, that's a cello, but yeah, I, I think oh. they were over reliant on using that song. I really, I really wish, I really wish this movie could have figured out its own sound because, like, the general score was pretty decent, but any use of that Wonder Woman theme from Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice, oh, how I hate that title, seemed seemed very intrusive. I liked it, but I think, you know, what you're speaking about is more about the modern trend of, of film scoring where you don't, it's not as much like scores from the 70s or 80s where you have uh, leitmotifs for different characters and you can play with them throughout, have a lot of memory, you know, otherwise themes you can hum, right? Um, yeah. As opposed to just having a bunch of percussion where it's like, you know, it's and, like drum In general tones, yeah. Yeah. Out like a white noise, <laughs> amped up to 11. But no, yeah, I, I enjoyed Wonder <laughs> Woman. Um, a thing that I watched was a, a documentary on HBO, um, very disturbing, called Tickled. Oh, I've been meaning to see that for ages. It's um, It just became available on HBO, and then what's cool is HBO, I think, helped finance a sort of follow-up documentary. But this is directed oh. by David Ferrier and Dylan Reeve, two New Zealand um, filmmakers. And uh, David Ferrier is sort of like a, he's famous in New Zealand for being a, um, oh, I didn't, like, like, like sort of like a TV personality. He'll do interviews of man on the street and that sort of thing. He's well known. Uh, anyway, but he stumbles online about uh, videos on uh, what's described as competitive endurance tickling. <laughs> and then it takes him down this really, really dark rabbit hole. And I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't want to spoil it too much. The trailers give uh, way too much away, in my opinion. But it's also one of the best cut trailers I've seen. Hmm. Yeah, this is something. This is this is a movie that I, I really, really want to see because I do. I do know a bit about what the documentary eventually turns out to be about. And I think one thing the documentary um, does quite well. And Stephen Fry, of all people, is an executive producer, which is interesting. Um, uh. At one point, it, it does show an example of uh, someone that makes tickling videos that it started as a, a fetish of his own, and then he made it into his full-time job as a business, oh, as cool. a legitimate business. And, and, and that they show someone that doesn't um, take it to such weird... Uh, harassing ends, I thought or was like unhealthy was nice. extreme. A healthy, right? Yeah, a healthy counterpoint to the the thing that's being covered. But um, yeah, it's you know, I, I think of the classic phrase that I think of when I see all great documentaries: truth is stranger than fiction. But uh, and what I did not realize is it was part of it was funded on Kickstarter in twenty fourteen. Yeah, and you touch on something that does that does get lost with a lot of uh, with a lot of like fetish things. When you're when you're exploring a fetish, you have to keep it safe, sane, and consensual. Hmm. You know that that's that's how that's how you that's how you you build trust with your partner and show your partner respect when you're when you're involved in something like that. Or, or even if you are, uh, you know, making it, making it on video, like between you and the people on camera, you've still got to keep it safe, sane, and consensual. And not, I mean, this, 
this isn't really a spoiler for the documentary, but I mean, like, not release stuff online without people's permission. Mm, yeah. Which I guess you could consider safe being some of that, although I think you're taking safe to mean uh, safe words. Well, safe, safe, safe physically is a is a big part of it, but just in 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 general, uh, you know, it's, it's safety, like. Like for instance, if if recordings are going to be made, uh, you know, you you really should have some sort of legal document on paper that that states what's going to be filmed, how it's going to be displayed, where the money's going to go. I mean, if you're doing it professionally, mm-hmm. you know, if you're doing it, you know, unprofessionally, like I do know, I do have some contact uh, in the world of uh, of of fetish art and people who do that kind of stuff uh, for commissions, and there there are sort of different ethical levels to that. I mean, there, there, there are people who, if they are asked to do a commission, they like, they flat out will not do a commission that involves a real person unless that real person has given them permission. Um, yeah, I mean, like, like, I'm not an attorney, but I, I did study law some and I, I would just, and so this is not legal advice, but I would say even if you're doing a non-professional, um, involved in a non-professional video, make sure there's some kind of contract that you sign and that you read it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not always, just for, it's, it's for your protection. Yeah, I'll, always, my, my, as a freelancer, my two pieces of writing, uh, always get it down in writing and cash up front. Yes. Never take a check because they can cancel that on you before you cash it. It's happened to me uh, once. Like so, so, the the best the best deals are when you can get a, a when you can get a, somebody to pay you a portion in advance because then you know they're really serious. It's called an advance, yes, absolutely. Yep. Well, that was some uh, interesting business talk. Um, a few things to to note before we close out here. I got a note from a fan of our show, Andrew, who's been listening cool. since uh, we were. He he, in fact, was the person that recommended us. Uh, to be on part Hellraiser? of um, not Hellraiser, but he recommended us to be part of when I did the antebellum oh, the period, the PDX.fm oh. uh, stuff. Oh, the antebellum, yeah, yep. or interbellum, interbellum, antebellum, whatever, bellum, bellum. It, it is interbellum, cerebellum. Um, and he said, you know, he said he likes the idea that we do these sort of gap episodes, which we'll probably do for one in a little bit, um, where we sort of cover additional movies and series that we covered before. Um, he says, I think it's the idea is ahead of its time because a lot of movie review shows that focus on, you know, franchises don't do an update when new stuff comes out. Yeah, I think I think we are definitely due for Star Trek Beyond at some point. I think so. You know, that might be the next thing we do after um, speaking of which, you know, the next uh, movie series we're covering here on Sequelcast 2 is the. Hanover, Hanover yeah, it's too many H's, man. The Hanover Trilogy, Hanover uh, 1, 2, and 3, we'll be doing it in the next few weeks, and then we'll follow that up with Star Trek Beyond, since you mentioned it. Excellent. Also, we're going to have a, um, a special episode, you know, the original sequel cast series went on for over 300 episodes, uh, among those were uh, audio commentaries, um, which is something we um, will bring back in some form, stay tuned for that, but... Um, it, Thrasher, you did this commentary. Was it by yourself or with the uh, Jason? Uh, no, I did this uh, with a former co-host, Jersey Jason. Right, right. and um, you know, and sad to say, uh, Adam West uh, died recently. He best known for playing 
TV's Batman on the 60s TV show. But he's also uh, had such a long career, whether it's playing Mayor Adam West on the Family Guy cartoon to... Playing himself on The Simpsons and The Critic? Yes, and also um, doing... Oh, he had a... What part did he play in the Batman the Animated Series? He had a nice... Oh, he he played the actor who played the Grey Ghost, the television superhero that inspired Bruce Wayne to put on a mask and fight crime. It's an amazing episode. Right, one of the finest um, episodes of that excellent series. I mean, he really acts in that episode. It's it's an amazing tr- it's an amazing tribute to both Adam West and also to to sort of anyone. Any childhood icon that's ever inspired somebody to take to do good works as an adult. So we're re-releasing that episode um, in memory. Well, of we did an audio commentary Batman. for the 1960s Batman movie starring Adam West. Right, right. Back in the day, and we were going to be re-releasing that as as uh, our tribute to Adam West to mark his passing uh, at uh, at the age of 88, which see, which seems for him seems so young. Yeah, he did. Um, but I mean, just what a career! So much, not just in television, but um, in film, he showed up for for different stuff. Uh, he he was in westerns. He was in the Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. He uh, he he reprised his role of Batman in the uh, direct to video movie uh, Return of the Cape Crusaders, which was a tribute to the 1960s Batman. Which is a cartoon, and he recorded his uh, lines of before his death for the sequel with Burt Ward um, called Batman vs. Two Face, and it features William Shatner voicing Two Face. And, and that is like a childhood dream to see a movie with both Adam to see a movie with with Adam West and William Shatner together. So I cannot wait for that to be released. Right, I, I, I'm I've so only glad caught... that that will probably be his his last work. That's so perfect. Yeah, uh, I've only caught part of the 2016 cartoon he did, Batman: Return of the Cape Crusader, but I really liked it, especially the the art design. Um, well, they really make it look like a, a 60s comic, and also reflective of the look of that show. Yep, um, another you know great more recent movie um, Adam West was in at a small part. In a, a biopic called Bad Ass, but ass is spelled with five S's. Sorry, six S's. Um, it's oh, directed yeah. by Mario Van Peeble, and it's about his father, Melvin Van Peebles. Um, yes, who starred in a Sweet Sweetback's Badass song. Right, who, was, who wrote, directed, and starred in um, one of the first... Um, Blaxploitation. Blaxploitation. Yeah, Blaxploitation people to to kick off that whole movement. But not only that, I mean, he did other things like a uh, watermelon man and I mean, all sorts of satirical uh, movies, but uh, badass is a great biopic, highly recommended it. Um, and uh, Adam West has a small part in that, which is fun, but yeah, I mean, he just has such a good career and I can't, um, not just in, in voiceover and more recent stuff, but also he, uh, in, in TV shows in the, in the seventies and, uh, and beyond. So he's, so many good things, so many fun things. And just so universally beloved by fans. That's right. I I, I, I think of this one quote. Um, director, although now he's more of a podcaster uh, lately, uh, Kevin Smith. That's not nice. He, he still directs films sometimes. Kevin <laughs> on occasion. Yeah, on occasion. He's done some TV work He's a busy recently. man. Yeah, a lot of TV stuff with comic book men. Kevin Smith, uh, you know, perhaps better known as Silent Bob, uh, on, does a podcast, uh, Fat Man on Batman. And he interviewed Adam West for that. 
at I think at some convention he did it as a live show or something and Adam West um, was talking about how when he wasn't even offered the part of Batman in the 1989 film he cried and he was very upset about that and felt he could have done a serious Batman if that's what they wanted but in, in years to come and he sees the love from the fans and he, he sees how much respect the TV show has gotten and it got the big re-release a few years ago he sort of more embraced his version of Batman and he said, you know, if the if the modern Batman is the Dark Knight, then I was the Bright Knight. And mm. uh, I don't think you could put that any better than that. Yeah, I, I could totally agree with that. Also, uh, it's worth tracking down in 2003, they did a TV movie, Return to the Batcave, The Misadventures of Adam and Bert. Which I have yet to see. I, I Every time I had an opportunity to see it, I, I screw it up. I end up not seeing it. It's um, It was released on DVD. It's a very sort of ton-in-cheek um, homage to, to the classic Batman show. Unfortunately, due to rights issues with the TV series, which are well-known, uh, they could only use clips from the original feature film. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Although, I, I am very happy with the uh, Batman 1960s Blu-ray set. Uh, my, my wife gave that to me for, for Christmas, and that's... I've been work, slowly working through that series, and it's just... It's such a treat. I need to buy that, man. So, is... Um, aren't... So, like, what aren't the episodes, like, short? Isn't that the thing? Uh, they're not... Well, I mean, there's no ad breaks, mm-hmm. they're, but they're not, they're not really short. Uh, they just, you know, the ad breaks... The ad breaks are missing, but... What makes it seem short is that it's until the final season, it's all serialized so that every episode is a two-parter. Ah, okay, right. So they always, so it always ends in the middle of a story, and then it starts, and then you start from that middle to to get to the the end, and that's roughly an hour of television. But and I had completely forgotten this because a lot of this is cut in syndication. A lot of these ends of the second parts of the two-parters still set up the next episode because it'll just be mentioned that a particular criminal has escaped or that a particular mm. crime has been committed and that will bleed over into the into the next two-parter. It should be mentioned the writer for the pilot for the 1960s Batman series is Lorenzo Semple Jr. Oh, yeah. Who, um, not only known for doing, you know, these, these respectable films like Parallax Fever and Three Days of the Condor, but I know him better for writing such... Uh, modern camp classics as uh the flash gordon movie from 1980 oh yeah with the soundtrack by queen soundtrack by queen and he also wrote the uh 1976 version of king kong and never say never again the last sean connery james bond yeah the one that only exists because of a a quirk in copyright law as i recall Yep. And oh, I wouldn't see this movie. He wrote a f- comic book film, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. Oh, wow. Starring Tanya Roberts. Yeah, that'd be worth checking out. And it got a DVD release. That's surprising. Um, when was that made? Uh... 84. Hmm. It, what does the poster say? She is an ancient prophecy fulfilled, a golden godchild possessed with a mystic gift, a gift which grew in strength as she grew in years, a gift about to be put to the ultimate test, innocence against evil. That's um, awfully wordy. And of course, <laughs> Sheena, Sheena as a He's white a woman. He's a brilliant overwriter. Yeah, Sheena as a white woman 
uh, riding a zebra with Africa behind her uh, is a bit problematic, but hey, it's based on a comic in the 30s. Um, as the poster says, she alone has the power to save paradise. That sounds fascinating. I'll have to check that out. Um, cool, 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 cool. So, let's see. What else? Um, what have you been working on, Thrasher? Uh, desperately scrambling to get the last of my material put together for the Origins Game Fair. Uh, so, you know, as, as I said, if you're going to be in Columbus, Ohio, uh, oh, I better I better look up the dates because it's, it's actually different. It's different dates for me than it is for attendees because of my kind of pseudo-professional uh, status. So if you are going to be in Columbus, Ohio from June 14th through the 18th, I will be there. I'll be running events for Kettlefish Productions. Uh, you can also catch me at any number of bars after the events. Uh, hanging uh, Jersey Jason will also be there. So it's a good time to talk to us in person, uh, have, have some fun, enjoy some good gamings. And if you're into it, enjoy uh, some of our live action role playing scenarios. Fantastic. Sounds great. Um, I'm in the middle of writing some some different pieces. I I sold some pieces. Now I got to write them. Of course, that's the hard part. <laughs> and uh, so I, I've kept myself busy with that. But you can um, let me see. And I think one of the more recent things I wrote is I did a, a piece for Dread Central about um, Atari twenty six hundred games with a horror theme. And sometimes they're oh, based cool. on movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Halloween. Or gremlins, but other times it's things like, um, oh, let me look this up. It's like a haunted house sort of um, game that's actually kind of ambitious, where you start as a as a girl collecting a rainbow ghost, and then you're throwing spears at zombies, and uh, it, some of them are pretty impressive with what they can do with the limitations of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Very cool. I remember a horror game, it may have just been called Haunted House or Haunted Mansion, where you're in a maze of rooms, but you can't see the rooms because the idea is it's dark. You are just a pair of I, eyes. Yes, that's one of the ones I looked at. Um, yeah, but you have like a flashlight that you can use mm -hmm. to illuminate the walls and, and, and possibly spot monsters and keys and things. Yep, yep. It's a bit like the, the game Adventure for the 2600, but more, uh, but more spooky. It is just called Haunted House, you're correct. And let me send you that artwork. Boy, howdy, that's some good artwork. I love the Atari. I, I do regret picking up a pre-release copy at the um, Portland Retro Gaming Expo. of a, They uh, published a hardcover book of prints of the um, cover artwork for the Atari games. Oh, I would love that. A lot of that stuff was so gorgeous back when you truly needed good cover art to sell a game. Yeah, here, take a look at this. Like, I, st I still get chills when I see the Missile Command... Uh... Artwork. Missile Command was good. Um, yep, this was the one. Yeah, they released a cartridge called Programming that I guess let you program in, in like a version of, of Basic or something, but like it had a very <laughs> uh, painterly... Most of these were done by the same people, but it was like a painterly painting... That's a poor description. Of, of a kid on a computer with like... And then his father with the stereotypical mustache and the glasses. Just a wonderful <laughs> piece of artwork. Well, goats, ghosts, bats, tarantulas, one-player game. I was going to say if it was goats, yeah, it seemed like a goatsy game on Atari 2600. <laughs> That'd be something indeed. Listeners, Google that, or perhaps not. Um, not safe for work. Okay, so, um, as, as we mentioned before, the next uh, few shows, we're going to be looking at the Hanover movies, so be sure to 
check those out. It's uh, unusual that comedies get a whole trilogy. Very unusual. So we'll have. Can you can you think of any other comedy that's gotten that many sequels other than Topper? Police Academy. I guess Meet the Parents got a bunch of sequels. Meet the Parents got three. Police Academy got seven. Uh, American Too Pie <laughs> got four plus four direct to video spinoffs. Um, okay, it happens more often than I remembered. I stand corrected. But still, not as much as like horror or science fiction films. You know, it's yeah. American Graffiti only got two. Um, God, that's terrible. Um, okay, so yeah, so there's been a few, but you're, it's still pretty uh, unusual. And you know, they've been trying to do new comedy film franchises. We only have two bad Santas, right? We only have uh, currently. Currently, true. Um, there is that. There was three Harold and Kumars, but um, that new um, Lampoon Vacation movie was not. I guess. I guess it is more of a recent phenomena. That's fair to say. Like, like after Topper, there's like a desert of 30 years with no big comedy, multi-part comedy franchises. That is true. So, um, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. And uh, follow the show at SequelCast2 on Twitter. Also, look up SequelCast2 on Facebook. Like our Facebook page. And you can check out our website for all the shows at sequelcast2.podbean.com and search for Sequelcast 2 on iTunes and subscribe and leave us a review. Every little bit helps. For Sequelcast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. Now all we need is skin. Sequel Cast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Find other great film and TV podcasts at battleshippretension.com. The theme song to Sequel Cast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the C. Listen to his music at markwiththec.com. You can also listen to Sequel Cast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to stitcher.com and search for Sequel Cast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.